Hello everyone, welcome back to the Manic Manor podcast. This is Michi. Today's episode, we're going to be discussing an unsolved murder case in South Korea. In the late spring, early summer of 2005, around June 7th, a cleaning worker given the name of Huang was out doing his rounds and picking up garbage in the Shenzhongdong area. One of the garbage areas that this worker was collecting from happened to have a mass that was covered with various rice sacks and bags and the appearance of what he initially thought was an old mannequin that had been tossed out by a nearby shop. He went to lift up the trash to toss it into the garbage truck, but he noticed how heavy the material was. Normally, mannequins are going to be light enough for a public service worker, like a trash collector, to toss away. However, he was struggling, and his intuition at the time told him that something about this just was not right, and it could be gruesome. It was about that time that he noticed a hand sticking out of one of the sacks, and when he touched the stomach area of what he thought was a mannequin, he soon realized that it wasn't, but an actual human body that had been dumped and left on the side like garbage. Police arrived on the scene and found the body of a 20-year-old woman, surnamed as Kwan, who lived in the neighborhood that had been hidden with these two huge rice sacks covering her upper half. Her lower half was concealed as well, with her legs being bent to shove her into the bag, and she was contorted in a way that made her look inhuman. Now, something that stuck out was the victim was still clothed, and it was suspicious on whether or not she had actually been assaulted, but her death was ruled a suffocation due to the compression that they found on her neck. But there was still massive amounts of trauma on her lower half. Now, on top of the bruising and scarring that was left on the woman's lower half, she also had excessive amounts of bite marks to her chest, and for a TMI warning, they found menstrual pads stuffed within her body. Upon completing an autopsy, the officials found no trace of DNA despite all of this evidence that would make them think that she could have possibly been assaulted. They traced back the day of Miss Kwan and found that she had gone to the doctor on June 6th because she had been battling a cold, and that was the last anybody had seen of her. Her body would be found a little over a mile away from where she lived in Xinjiang. But unfortunately, there were no leads, nor witnesses to the crime. And unfortunately, without any solid leads, the case would go cold. And then around six months later, the authorities would get another call that a body was found in the area, similar to how Miss Kwan was found. A restaurant owner had noticed something was odd about the garbage area that he went outside to throw his trash to. Perplexed, he nudged the mass and noted how squishy it felt. Another body had been found, only a mile from the location of the first victim's body. Now, this body was dumped in a similar manner as the first victim, Miss Kwan, covered in sacks and plastic bags, and this victim would be identified with the surname E. Her husband had noted that she had gone radio silent, but he only thought that she had gone to visit her parents until she never returned home. And Miss Lee's cause of death would be ruled the same as Miss Kwan, suffocation due to neck compression. The police compared the two cases because of the striking similarities. 
They both had massive amounts of trauma to their lower half and their back. Both women had been bound up with either rice sacks or plastic bags and tied with rope, as well as haphazardly dumped by trash areas. The question came was if these two cases were definitely connected. Now, judging by the manner in which they were done, it would seem definitely that they were, but the police were still questioning it. And then another question came to who would harm these women and dump them in residential trash areas of the Xinjiang area. What was more disturbing is the area in which these bodies were dumped because they were close to the local elementary school. They questioned why these bodies would be so carelessly dumped and came to the conclusion that whoever committed this crime just wanted to dispose of the bodies in a hurry. They looked at the six-month intervals between both crimes as a clue as well. They believed that the killer gained confidence after not being caught the first time and decided to strike again. They also assumed that the killer had to be living nearby because the manner in which the bodies were dumped. They also looked at the knots being tied onto the second victim and it was depicted that the killer was learning from the first murder and trying harder to cover their tracks. But also, the authorities and specialists who noted these knots tied onto the bodies had to be done by somebody who had a knowledge or a profession related to packing or knot tying. The biggest clue the authorities had, though, was despite the victims being found in different locations, they both were last seen at the Shenzhong station before disappearing and both happened to be during a holiday time. While doing the investigation, it was discovered that there was a woman who goes by the surname Pak, who had managed to escape a kidnapping attempt in the same exact area of Xinjiang Station, and her abduction also happened to fall on a holiday in the area six months to the date of the last murder. Now she came forth stating how she was on her way to visit her boyfriend and was going to be making a stop at Mokmong Station. However, she missed that initial getting off point which, of course, the next stop led her to Xinjiang Station. As she walked through the station, she mentioned running into a man who told her that if she made a sound, or if she screamed, that he would kill her. Now, he came up behind her and was whispering this into her ear, and she knew that he had a weapon, but she couldn't tell exactly what it was because she wasn't able to see it but she complied to keep her life safe. She mentioned being taken into a dark semi-basement of an apartment building and heard the killer talking with another man during this time. However, they both were distracted and one of them ended up going to the bathroom and she used this opportunity to make a break for it. Now she ran from the basement level up to the second story of the apartment building and hid behind a shoe rack. Now the shoe racks um, in Korea, of course some people leave them outside in certain apartment buildings, um, so she would stay hidden behind there and as she was waiting, just waiting for you know a safe time to flee because she didn't know if the killer was going to be out looking for her, she noticed a sticker on the side of the rack and this sticker was a Mashimaru rabbit sticker. This is how the case got its name of the Mashimaru Killer or the Xinjiang Bazaar Rabbit Murder Case.
not because of anything that um, the killer was wearing, but simply from the fact that the only true witness to the case was able to notice a sticker. Now, she was so terrified that she felt that she had to just sit and wait to make a break for it, and that felt like hours for her. She couldn't remember the exact location of this building. She just wanted to get to safety. She recalled her eyes being covered, and she was punched multiple times in the throats uh, before making her escape. And she also noted that the men cursing that she, uh, she had escaped as she was hiding, she could hear them. And of course, like I said, it would be hours, or what felt like hours for her, before she ran to the same elementary school that we had mentioned earlier. That was the last thing that she could remember. Now, she did mention the house that she ran from, or the apartment building she ran from, was not far from the school at all. So it gave the detectives a little bit of a lead, um, narrowing down the possibility of where this potential killer lived. But it should be said that initially the police simply told Puck to calm down, in true Korean police fashion, as we've seen in quite a few other cases. Um, they went from being, you know, these hardcore um, assholes, quite literally, in the past, to now it's like they're telling everybody to calm down when they're having some sort of trouble, or they're just pretty complacent. She felt like they weren't going to be of any help to her. And it wouldn't be until um, Kogoshiya Goshipta, the television series, took on the case many years later that we see this testimony from her. And the detective started um, coming forth stating a multi-rise building behind the school could have been where the perpetrators were located. Now in the show it was also revealed that one of the victims, Miss Lee, that we mentioned before, had mold on her clothes. And this was a type of mold that was determined to have come from a semi-basement apartment because, you know, with semi-basement apartments, I lived in one, there's a severe lack of light and moisture builds up super easy. It was determined that this mold had to have fell onto her clothing or had to be picked up from another location other than where her body was dumped. Miss Park was also able to tell that the floor of the basement was covered in tons of plastic ropes as her memory became more clear. She recalled the perpetrator trying to tie her up, but somehow he was not able to do so. He failed at it, and this was part of why she was able to make her getaway. She also stated that while she didn't remember much of his face, his eyebrows were prominently a figure that stood out because they looked cartoonish in a way drawn on like with heavy makeup or a sharpie. She mentioned he stood about 175 centimeters or roughly 5'7 and had kind of a buff build and at the time was probably in his early to mid 30s. She definitely remembered that shoe rack though with the Mashimoto sticker. That was a most definite remembrance. It was talked about how the paint on this shoe rack was worn. Uh, there was a flower pot that sat on top of it. And it looks like the flower pot was possibly made by a uh, child 
for like a school arts and crafts project. Now, something that seemed strange in the show was after Miss uh, Puck's failed kidnapping, there was not another incident in that area that was similar to this. It was almost as if the killer or killers were scared because she got away. So the show aired in 2015 and people were asked to come forward with stories or potential leads. Now the show of course got many emails and phone calls about this particular episode of the show. Um, they filtered through and of course you know they had to get rid of a lot of things that just didn't add up because a lot of people they love to go in and just make up stories but they did get some interesting leads. An anonymous source had called in mentioning that she lived in an apartment complex and there were two men that lived in a, a semi-basement area of this multiplex in 2006. Another called in mentioning a house with lots of ropes at the entrance and a cable TV worker had come forth stating that he had been visiting a complex in a basement apartment that had to have some wiring done. He entered the house and noted that there was a ton of ropes in the living room and plastic bags as well. Now they combed and combed through all of these potential leads until a woman came forward with information that the police had not made public. A woman mentioned about her young son getting um, gum at convenience stores and stuff and a pack of this gum that he had got had a Mashimato sticker in it and he loved to take these stickers and place them on everything in their home and one of the stickers she recalled he placed on a shoe rack that they kept outside. Now the mother mentioned that if somebody had hid behind that they could only see um, this one major Mashimato sticker and another thing that stood out was she spoke of the flower pot that her son had made for her in daycare and she had left it outside on this shoe rack to dry. She went on to say that she was pregnant at the time with her second child and had this child in October of 2006. Um, she mentioned a man who lived in the same unit as her moved around the same time that she gave birth in 2006 and said it was this man who was in his 30s and was just paying you know monthly rent and a friend would come and stay with them sometimes and another thing was that he worked in Gurudong and as of that tip although it seems like there is a lot of evidence there that is pretty solid and convincing the case was still under investigation now this was an update that was given four years ago and I was never able to um, locate anything else of a potential lead in this case. Um, of course, that's not to say that there aren't new leads that haven't been found as of this recording, but from what I was able to discover, um, the case was still technically under investigation. So far, other than that current lead of being investigated, the police had been tipped off that there were two men who had been working in uh, Busan that were convicted of sexually assaulting a woman. One man had been paroled about 2018, while the other had been released in 2020. Now they interviewed one of these men, and when they did an interview 
and I'm assuming it's at their home, they saw ropes all over the floor, but it isn't stated if they necessarily pursued this lead at all. The show's crew found this man as well and asked about the signature look of, you know, a killer with the dark, cartoonish, sharpie-like eyebrows, and the man simply stated he hated makeup. He wouldn't do that to his eyebrows. So far, the most recent thing that I've seen was February 27th of 2022, when someone in um, the investigation noted that they were re-examining all of the clues and leads that had come forth. Some reports have come out of people stating they've seen a man that resembles the uh, composite sketch that had come out around downtown Seoul apartment buildings. Some mentioned strange behavior from this man, like he would get into elevators, but he would never press buttons. Some have gone on to uh, neighbor cafes to state maybe it's a tactic to catch women in vulnerable positions so they can commit another crime or stalk a victim but they've all been rumors so far. It's all speculation. The killer has yet to be officially named or caught, but people are still online talking about how there is a suspicious man, whether he be in this area or another. Um, a popular rumor was around Gyeonggi-do, um, who was acting strangely like pressing on doorbells or, of course, like I said before, getting onto these elevators and not hitting a single button. Now, officials did state to proceed with caution and check intercoms before opening doors. Um, of course, just your typical safety protocols for people living in the area to avoid, you know, being a victim of crime, but it's just common sense safety. Now, it was stated that the Seoul Yongcheon Police Station has jurisdiction over the case, so any tips can be reported to them if they notice anybody that resembles this potential killer, so they can try to catch them. And I will include that number in my description. But that is the case of the Mashimaru killer. So as it is still remaining unsolved, the case is still open and pending investigation. But I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode, and I hope that maybe it'll be one step closer to them finding this potential killer. So once again, thank you guys for listening in today. If you have any comments or questions, you can always reach out to me at manicmanorpodcast at gmail.com or on Facebook or Instagram at manicmanorpodcast. So until the next episode, I hope you guys have a wonderful week. Bye-bye.